to Luke chapter 19. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Yeshua, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Yeshua entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Shabbat Shalom. You know, often um, we who are believers, followers of Yeshua, don't know what to do with, with the portions in Scripture that are depressing. Um, for example, Lamentations. I don't imagine very many people have had in-depth studies in the book of Lamentations. And so we have a hard time knowing what to do with events as well that are difficult to embrace simply because we naturally, t we naturally are moved towards the, the fun and the good and the joyful, which is, of course, good. However, the problem is a big chunk of life isn't like that. And so the problem is, how do we embrace the difficulties of life? And in, in, uh, in the conviction that God is in control and that he reigns in the good times and in the bad times. And this is what scripture gives us lots of instruction if we are only interested in, in seeing it and embracing it. And so from time to time I hear comments from, from people, sometimes Jews, sometimes Gentiles, that look at the subject of the Holocaust. And by the way, we prefer the term Shoah because Holocaust has some connotations 
with things that are burned and, and implying uh, that there is a connection with burnt offering. And that's just not something that fits very well. Shoah in Hebrew means catastrophe or um, great difficulty. And by the way, you find the word Shoah in Hebrew in the scriptures. So for us, Shoah is a much more user-friendly um, term, as it were. But um, part of what we also see, what I see, uh, what I've seen over a number of uh, years, I won't tell you how many because I've got a whole bunch of gray hairs. You can only imagine. Periodically, I have Christians tell me that the Shoah was the direct result of God punishing the nation of Israel for the rejection of Yeshua. And a friend of David uh, Katz's sent him an email, which he passed on to me, which was an expression of that. And I wanted to read to you um, a portion of that so that you can see some of what has been said and is being said, and, and then see what the Word of God really tells us about the Shoah, and specific, specifically, what would Yeshua do at Auschwitz. Here, here are some of the sentences from this email. The verses that I'm recommending this week are Exodus 23, 1 and 2 and 7. It is interesting that the Jewish leaders who would have been very familiar with these verses are the very ones who became guilty of putting the most important and only really innocent person in history to death. Notice where he puts the, the culpability, the blame. It is when we see these verses and their fulfillment in Jesus' trial and execution that we understand why the Jews went through so many atrocities, especially the Holocaust. God did say that he would not acquit the guilty. Also, the fact that God allowed Moses to pen these words so many years in advance is remarkable. Neither Moses nor the many who would read or recite these verses in the days of the Old Testament had a clue that they would be fulfilled by the nation against Messiah, God's own Son. May these verses bless and challenge you this week. And uh, at least from my perspective, I can say amen and, um, and say to this brother, uh, your comments have been a blessing to me because I consider them to be, on one level, a lie. And a lie always has an element of truth in it. The best lies have an element of truth in it. Does Scripture say that God punishes the wicked? Of course, he, Scripture tells us that. Does the nation of Israel, um, did God punish the nation of Israel for its sin, particularly of idolatry? Of course he did. Scripture is very emphatic about that. And the rabbis, by the way, wrestled with the whole question of why did God bring, uh, cause the destruction of the temple in the year 70, since for all intents and purposes, the nation of Israel was not engaged in idolatry during those years. In fact, if anything, 
you can make a case that uh, the people of Israel during Yeshua's time were at least outwardly involved in the worship of God and that there was really no case of idolatry. So the rabbis really struggled with that. Uh, why did God do that? Why did God see to it that his house would be destroyed? And interestingly enough, what they came up with was the statement that the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. In other words, hatred that had no legitimate cause. And of course, they really didn't, didn't expound on exactly why they meant that. But I have no doubt that uh, this is directly referring to Yeshua. In fact, Yeshua quoted the passages uh, from Psalm 63 and Psalm 35, where it speaks, where, where the psalmist speaks about those who would hate him without cause. Exactly the same expression, sitnat chinam. Um, so a very strong case can be made, and we will look at that, that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was due to Israel's sin. However, what do we do with 2,000 years of persecution and suffering? Especially with an event such as the Holocaust, which brings us to this question that philosophers and theologians and ordinary folks have broken their teeth over for the last thousand or so, thousands of years. That is simply, why does God allow suffering to come into the lives of people who are apparently good people? Why does God allow good people to suffer? And each one of us, I imagine for each one of us here, we can have a different answer. And there are some apparent answers that we can come up with, such as God allows suffering in order to bring about refining, in order to strengthen us. Again, le legitimate biblical answers. However, how do you address an event such, the, such as the Holocaust? And by the way, you may not be aware of the fact that among the six million Jews who perished, there was roughly about a quarter of a million, 250,000 Jews who were followers of Yeshua. What do you do with that? Do you have answers? And I hope that as you consider uh, the passages in Scripture, particularly today, that you have the wisdom and the honesty to step back and say, I really don't have answers. This is one of these mysteries for which I don't have any answers. God alone has the answers. And yes, I can bring all kinds of factors such as the socioeconomic, such as uh, the fact that, that uh, Hitler took over Germany at a time where the people were ripe and so on and so forth. You know, I've, I've heard this, these discussions ad infinitum ad nauseum. However, as you study the history of the Holocaust, as, and as you study major suffering and major genocide, by the way, the Holocaust is one example of a whole bunch of other genocides that have taken place since then and before. 
I hope that you have the maturity in the Lord to be able to say, you know, I don't know. And this is one of the mysteries, <coughs> excuse me, that we have in Scripture. And I'm convinced, folks, that we do ourselves and the cause of Yeshua great injustice when we attempt to answer the questions that are unanswerable. We convey to the, to the Lord and to ourselves and particularly to the world a great deal of arrogance that we have the answers to all of life's questions, which we don't. And, and part of the, the challenge for me as I look at the, the passage today, I recognize that it is never discussed. How many sermons have you heard that address the fact that Yeshua cried over Jerusalem? You hear all the discussions about Palm Sunday and how that Yeshua came and was welcomed by a crowd of apparent disciples, which was the case. And by the way, a little bit of geography, <coughs> as you're approaching Jerusalem from the east, you of course found the Mount of Olives and, and you have a couple of several villages such as Bethany and so on. And you, you crest the Mount of Olives and from the top of Mount of Olives you can see Jerusalem spread out. And then you descend the Mount of Olives and then uh, into the Kidron Valley and then you climb up Mount Zion and come into Jerusalem. And that's what we, that's what we find Yeshua doing um, in this section that speaks about the triumphal entry and also Yeshua actually coming into Jerusalem. This is, by the way, pretty phenomenal when you think about it that you have the uh, major crowd of people affirming Yeshua as King Messiah. Now, again, remember that when Scripture speaks about disciples, it's sometimes disciples in quotation marks because these are guys who could turn on the dime and sometimes they liked Yeshua and then Yeshua said some things that really got under the skin and their attitude was, I'm out of here, I'm gone, forget you. Uh, we see that, for example, in John chapter 6. So, when you say disciples, take it with a grain of salt or a pound of salt. But in the very least, they affirm him as King Messiah. And what is odd is not everybody affirms him as King Messiah. If you recall here in Luke chapter 19... And um, the verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd saying to him, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. Why? In other words, they wanted Yeshua to yell out to the people, hey, folks, I'm just an ordinary rabbi. You know, I do little miracles here on the side, but I'm not King Messiah. And of course, Yeshua's response was, I tell you, even if they don't talk, the stones will 
cry out and scream. In other words, God will find ways to affirm not just who I am, but that my mission. And Yeshua, you know, sometimes you look at Scripture and you read in between the lines and you recognize that there are all kinds of emotions. I think if you and I were put on, on a donkey or on a horse and everybody and their mother was yelling, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes, we would fly to the moon emotionally. Yeshua obviously doesn't because he recognizes what's going to happen in a day or so that people will turn and that his death is coming. But really more to it, what, what we have a hard time getting our arms around is yes, Yeshua is a teacher, was a teacher, is a teacher, a rabbi, but Yeshua first and foremost was a prophet. He was the last one in the line of, of biblical prophets. And if you, as you read the prophets in the Tanakh in the Old Testament and, and you see how they reflect the heart of God, you see that life for a prophet was very difficult, very painful because they proclaimed the word of God to a people who wanted nothing to do with the word of God, wanted nothing to do with God who were religiously outwardly but really not interested. And of course we see that all around us. You know, it's ironic when you talk to people and you ask them where they are spiritually, they say, I'm a very spiritual person. I believe in God, I pray, but I'm not interested in that religious stuff. Which trend being translated simply means I want to worship God or talk to Him uh, on my terms. And when I'm, I'm busy, then I put him in, in a corner, sort of stuff him in my pocket. And whenever I need him, I pull him out and I talk to him. And I expect answers. That was the culture back then. It is the culture today. And Yeshua looks at that and looks at the fact that there is severe consequences coming for the majority of the people who choose not to accept him and his message. And by the way, when you read Jewish sources, commentaries on this, they address this as Yeshua responding to people rejecting him personally. It really isn't about Yeshua being rejected personally. It's about Yeshua, Yeshua's heart being broken because, yes, he's being rejected, but along with that, the message of salvation and redemption for Israel is also being rejected. That the people had an option whether to accept God's redemption or whether to accept God's judgment. And they're going to accept God's judgment. as often is the case today, you know, people's attitude is, well, um, I don't care if Yeshua approaches Jerusalem 
and he sees the city and he weeps over it. By the way, there are a couple of different words in, in the gospel accounts that describe Yeshua crying. One, one was the um, account of Yeshua weeping at Lazarus' tomb. And the word that's used there conveys the sense that Yeshua was overwhelmed emotionally and he was tearing up and he was choked up with tears. And it was something fairly personal that people around him were able to see, but it, it, was, it was relatively quiet. It was relatively muted. The word that's used here in Luke 19 is a totally different word and it has a, a sense of Yeshua bursting out, weeping and wailing loudly, lamenting, crying, so that not just the few around him, but that people in the multitude would see that Yeshua is weeping. And it's not as if he really was looking to make a statement there. He is, again, reflecting the heart of God, both the frustration and, and, and the anger at their sin, but, but really more to that, their deep sorrow and anguish at the needless suffering that is coming their way. You know, we who are followers of Yeshua look around a society that is often godless, even though it describes itself as spiritual, and we become indifferent, we become desensitized to the fact that there are people around us who are detached from God and who are going to, to experience severe consequences for, for their choice of rejection of Yeshua. This is very much the life of the prophet. As we saw earlier in the responsive reading, Jeremiah says, let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing my people has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. Again, it's reflecting the Father's heart. You see that, for example, also in Ezekiel <coughs> chapter 18, where the Lord speaks through Ezekiel and says, Therefore I will judge you, each one according to his ways. Repent, turn away from your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Do you see the anguish and the pathos, the, the, the sadness reflected in the heart of the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah and in Yeshua's day. Yeshua cries out and basically says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And he, by the way, he doesn't complete a sentence. And that's a, a reflection of the deep, deep, heartbreak that Yeshua experienced, the deep emotion, because the sentence, if it were to be completed, would read something like this, if 
even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, you would change. You would repent. You would make a different decision. But now it's hidden from your eyes. It's a frightful choice that the majority of Israel chose to make at that point. To reject Yeshua and the message of the kingdom of God that he was bringing. Again, yes, there were people who embraced Yeshua on some kind of a level. You know, the disciples, the 12, and then others around him who had embraced Yeshua on some level. But what we need to remember is that at this point, the Sanhedrin, the religious Supreme Court of the land, had already passed, passed the death sentence on Yeshua since the time that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeshua is aware of the fact that they were choosing to reject him and to experience a time of visitation. God's coming to visit them, as it were, in, in judgment. And it's so, so ironic that the language that's used here in the so-called um, Palm Sunday, uh, the, the welcoming of Yeshua, people, people say things such as, um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you recognize that these are very similar to the words that were used when Yeshua was first born, when the angels proclaimed the good news of salvation and redemption that was coming? People had the option to go with one or the other, and they chose the other. Now, what's peculiar here as you read this, you wonder, is Yeshua saying that people were clueless, were spiritually clueless, and that it was sort of a catch-22. They, they didn't know, and they made poor decision because of that they're suffering. No. What we see in Scripture is that God gives all of us some basic knowledge and basic understanding. And that's every single human being. Paul describes it this way. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by the wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God had made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, and by the way, I'm reading from Romans 1 here, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In plain English, what Paul is saying is that every single human being that, who is born has some kind of basic grasp of God's revelation. That when they look out over the 14ers, the mountains, 
they have a basic understanding there had to be someone, and, and this is regardless of evolution and, and the Big Bang Theory and all of that. Um, everybody has a sense of mystery of how the world came about. And we're also told that the, another powerful witness is our conscience, a basic sense of right and wrong that is transcultural, that when you go from one society to another, you find that people have similar kind of ideas about what is right and wrong. That is part of revelation that God gives all people. And Paul is saying that we have the choice either to embrace the, the light and the knowledge that God gives us or to reject it. In Romans 1, Paul describes a society like ours that has made the choice to reject God's knowledge, to reject God's revelation, and has become spiritually dense. And this is a very basic principle that as God gives you and I basic understanding, basic light, we can either embrace it and accept it, in which case God gives us more, or we can reject it, in which case God, in essence, takes it away from us. So we, we become spiritually clueless, brainless. And of course, taking God's light and God's revelation means that we act on it. We are obedient to that. It's a choice. And so, when Scripture speaks about those who are spiritually blind, it's not as if that, that they were totally blameless. It's been called culpable ignorance. In other words, ignorance that comes as a result of rejecting the revelation previously given by God. You see that, for example, with the prophet Isaiah. By the way, I'm glad I'm not Isaiah. <laughs> I, I, I would have to have special anointing from God to be able to put up with his kind of ministry. Although there are times I have a little smidge of understanding. Um, Sixty years. His commission was, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wow. What the Lord was saying to Isaiah is, the more you share the word that I give you, the worse it's going to get. People are going to hear, but they're not going to hear, they're not going to get it, they're not going to receive it. And they're going to become worse and worse and worse. That's exactly what happened in Isaiah's society. Over a period of time, the society in Judah just spun out of control and was on a downward spiral. What do you do with that? Do you give up and say, well, I might as well go and um, hide in, in a corner or be part of a messianic ghetto, you know, where, where you um, have uh, uh, believing dentists and believing doctors and believing real estate uh, guys and believing mechanics and so on and so forth and, and form your own um, hermetically sealed culture 
because people around you are not interested in Yeshua, the more you talk to them, the worse they get? That's one option, and I see that happening sometimes. Or you recognize that despite the hardness of man's heart, the power of God is at work. Dramatically, decisively, mysteriously. And yes, there are times when people get harder and harder, but there are times when people, perhaps a minority, hear and embrace the truth of God and receive it, repent and receive God's healing and redemption. And by the way, this is what the Word of God will do. Every single time when the Word of God is proclaimed, whether in, in the reading and studying of the Word of God personally and individually, or whether when we come together and hear the Word of God in different forms. By the way, I hope you realize that the Word of God today has been proclaimed in different forms through the worship service, through the responsive reading, through the Torah service. And let me put in a plug. Let me encourage you to come early. To come early uh, with enthusiasm and expectation to hear, the, to hear from God. Because God wants to talk to you. Wants to talk to all of us. And of course, come prepared not only to hear, but to receive it and to embrace it. Because the same principle applies in your life as it applies in the life of society as a whole. God speaks to us, and we have the option either to hear and receive and embrace and act in obedience, or say, God, forget it. I am, you know, respectfully, I'm really not interested. You know, what you're telling me is, is really beyond me. It's, it's too hard, and, and, and furthermore, I don't like it. Or we can humbly receive the word of God and say, Okay, Lord, I don't know what to do with that. I, I'm pretty sure that it's you speaking, and if it is you speaking, please confirm it and show me how to, to live it. The word of God will act in the same way, period in our life, in the life of society around us. Yeshua's day, clearly what has happened was that people heard him. He preached in, in the public arena. He preached in the temple. He taught in the synagogues. He healed people. People saw the kingdom of God at work in Yeshua's life, and you had the few who accepted him and Embrace the message of redemption, but you have a huge majority that chose to reject and became spiritually clueless so that the light that they had was now hidden from their eyes. That's part of God's judgment on the rebellious. And lest we jump to conclusion and say God is harsh, what we have to remember is that before God's judgment comes, He patiently waits. 
patiently waits. In the case of the nation of Israel, God waited for hundreds of years before he sent them to exile in Babylon. He patiently waited with Israel in, in Yeshua's day. He presented countless examples of the fact that he was the real deal. And yes, there were tens of thousands from what the book of Acts tells us, Acts 21, there were tens of thousands who accepted Yeshua, but the majority of the nation chose not to accept him. Again, part of the picture, folks, is Yeshua doesn't delight any more than the other prophets did in the knowledge that God's judgment is coming, God's severe judgment. By the way, again, this is all on the same day as Palm Sunday. In Matthew, we have a parallel account where Yeshua says the following, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chick, chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Do you see the, do you hear the pain in Yeshua's voice here? Because he is aware of what's coming up. In Luke 43, he predicts it. The days come, will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in. On every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your wall. They will not leave one stone upon another. This, of course, was fulfilled 40 years later when the Romans came and destroyed the city. They besieged the city, basically um, caused much of the population to die of starvation. They executed a bunch of people, sold into slavery the rest. According to some accounts, one million Jewish people died in the rebellion against the Romans during those years. You talk about judgment, severe judgment. This is clear. However, what Yeshua makes very clear in the Matthew account, Matthew 23, 36, he makes it very clear that this judgment is coming upon that generation. That generation who made a choice to reject him. And we have absolutely no ground to make a direct connection between what took place in the first century in the rejection of Yeshua and what has taken place over the last 2,000 years in the persecution and suffering that Jewish people experienced, particularly the Holocaust. One reason we know that is, for example, when Peter speaks to a Jewish audience in Acts chapter 3. This is just a... a a short few months after Yeshua was resurrected and ascended, 
Peter proclaims the same message of repentance to a Jewish audience. In Acts 3.17, Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets saying that Messiah would suffer. Here is his conclusion. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Yeshua. He must repent. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he's promised long ago in his holy prophets, through his holy prophets. This is Acts 3, 17 to 19. What Peter is saying at that point is God's door hasn't been shut. Opportunity for repentance is there. And Yeshua himself is not looking at Israel and Jerusalem in particular and saying, because you rejected me, that's it. You're lost forever. This unfortunately has been the, the message that has been communicated from much of the church to Jewish people, particularly by church fathers, that Jewish people were condemned eternally for the sin of the rejection of Yeshua. That's certainly not what he himself said. Matthew 23, 39, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the implication? Implication is, yes, you will see me. But what will be required for you to see me and receive redemption will be your accepting me and accepting me as God's messenger of redemption by saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, there will come a time when all Israel will be saved. But Yeshua's message is a difficult one for all people, not just Jewish people who choose to go their own way and, and refuse to accept him as God's answer. And how do you put all this together when you think about the Shah, when you think about what had happened in Europe, what continues to happen with increased anti-Semitism? We park where God parks. The Word of God is very emphatic in telling us that God is faithful to His covenants. To his covenants to Israel, to his covenants, period. And when we look at Israel, we know that if God is faithful to Israel, guess what? He's faithful to us. And yes, part of the process is God allowing, sometimes bringing on judgment, severe punishment, sometimes allowing it to come Sometimes for reasons that we understand, 
where there is clear example of sin, other times for reason that we don't fully understand. And part of our basic approach of humility is looking at people such as the survivors and, and from the Shoah and other people who have gone through what seems to be needless suffering. And we take an attitude of humility and we say, we really don't know why you have suffered. Instead of rushing to explain Foolishly, I believe, rushing to explain why suffering has come into people's, into their life. God does not call us to propagate answers to difficult questions. Questions that are beyond us. What God calls us to do is to comfort. Paul tells us with the same comfort that we have received from God, we should comfort others. He tells us that as well earlier prophet Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. That's our commitment as we approach the March of Remembrance tomorrow. I'd like to encourage everybody to come. It's a commitment, it's a sacrifice. I especially like to encourage you if you have a call and a gifting as an intercessor, please come early. Our intercessors last year and I believe this year will go over the route of the march and will pray for God's power and God's blessing to come upon the gathering at this march. Come with a simple desire to be a vessel that the Lord can use to touch and bless other people without offering to give all the perceived answers. To listen, this is sometimes hard for us because we want to give all the answers. Just listen, and as God enables you, comfort those who suffered. Convey to them that God's comfort is available for them. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, shalom, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That's our desire tomorrow. To come as messengers of the Lord's shalom. There'll be people of all kinds of backgrounds. There'll be Jews, there'll be Gentiles, the mayor and state representatives of different kind, at least one rabbi, possibly a couple of rabbis, Holocaust survivors. God is at work, and he calls us to join him. Would you please stand? We bless your name, Lord.
you who are all-knowing, you who have answers to all the dilemmas and all the mysteries and all the deep and painful questions we have, Lord, you have answers. And we thank you, Lord God, that you don't offer to give us answers to all these questions, but that somehow, in the midst of the trials and the suffering, you answer us, Lord, by giving us extra measure of your presence, Lord. And Lord, that's our desire for those of us who are particularly suffering at this point. We, we pray, Lord God, El Malerachamim, the God of all comfort, that you would comfort us. And we pray, Lord God, that as you comfort us, that you would equip us and anoint us to be vessels of comfort, to be messengers of your shalom to those who are suffering and who don't know you. Lord, we clearly see your hand at work in this upcoming event. It's a reminder, Lord, that you are at work. We bless you and thank you, and we pray, Lord God, that your ruach would stir us, Lord God, to participate in the work of your kingdom that you have tomorrow and in days afterwards, Lord. Bring us out, Lord God, of our comfort. Bring us, Lord God, through the gate so that we can prepare the way for those who need to come to you. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.